The most terrifying part of bullet injuries is the way they present painfully obvious that death is near, but shrouded in mystery because you don't know where. That's LJ Punch, a trauma surgeon in St. Louis. He's seen what bullets do to bodies. He spent years on trauma teams working against a ticking clock, trying to grab a hold of a life before it slips away. But the physical damage bullets do is only part of the story. On today's program, a conversation with Dr. Punch about the emotional, social, and spiritual toll when bullets wound. I'm Sean Collins, and this is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm glad you're listening. Core elements as a trauma surgeon in treating someone who has just been shot is moving them as quickly and as strategically toward bleeding control, recognizing that bleeding is the number one reason why someone dies from a bullet injury other than having a devastating injury to their brain or spinal cord. And that you must identify precisely but quickly exactly where that bleeding might be coming from and how severe it is. A bullet is about a half-inch piece of metal that can move faster than the speed of sound. It hits the skin and hits the underlying tissue. And depending on how big it is, how close it was fired, and what angle the body was as it entered, it can create something that's really not much deeper than a paper cut, or it can literally explode the internal organs, causing near instant death. And the thing is, when someone has come into the hospital, either in an ambulance or in the back of someone's car, and you're getting to know them, you do not know in that moment if that bullet has shredded someone's aorta or it has simply gone through a little bit of skin and fat and will not physiologically in that moment cause them an enormous amount of pain and potentially death. The thing is, bullets make holes on the outside that are generally pretty small, unless they're military-grade bullets, like what you might find in an AK-47. The hole on the outside has nothing to do with the path of destruction, as the bullet hits, bends, bounces off of tissue and bone, and can create a path very, very long inside the body that's creating explosive power everywhere it goes. Because it's not just the path of the bullet. It's the energy around the bullet that radiates out as if it's a little tiny explosion moving through the body, cutting with a knife and leaving a blast of tissue behind that then can bleed, that then can die, that then can cause death in the moment and in the weeks to come. So once someone's on the table cleaned up and draped and you have found the holes, the key is to explain the path. Literally, you must explain to yourself, if I have a hole in the left shoulder and another hole in the right side of the abdomen, I need to know exactly where that bullet went through that person's body and assure that every organ and every vessel in between has not been injured or that if it has, that I'm actively repairing it. So as trauma surgeon, what you're doing is solving a mystery and solving that mystery as fast as you can, completely dependent 
on a team around you who must support the work to get it done as this orchestrated chaos. And I think the most humbling part is that no matter how fast you go, uh, no matter how clear you are, no, no matter the precision, no matter the power of the moment, it is not up to us where that bullet goes. I've seen the bullet be a quarter inch away from the heart, such that someone had the most slight injury to, on their chest and in their muscle and left the hospital the next day. And I've seen somebody have a bullet, as I said, literally explode them from the inside out with blood and destruction and terror. And it can be a quarter inch that makes a difference. Over that fate, over that trajectory, I had absolutely no power. And it's the reason why, as a trauma surgeon, I realized my power was not going to be best actualized inside the operating room, but to try and twist, literally bend the trajectory of those bullets by putting my energy and my workforce outside the walls of the hospital. Gunfire is not all that uncommon in St. Louis. There are usually several shootings each day. St. Louis is a city of 300,000 in a metro area of 3 million. And it's remarkably difficult to find trustworthy numbers to quantify bullet injuries. No one tracks the number of people who are shot each year and survive. For the four years ending in 2020, there were 2,000 fatal shootings in the Metro St. Louis area. And other research leads us to estimate that for every fatal shooting, there are two non-fatal ones, meaning approximately three people are shot in St. Louis each day and survive. But again, you have to massage numbers to find that out. No one in St. Louis is tracking shootings directly. So far in 2022, through the end of July, just in the city of St. Louis, not in the metro area, there have been more than 1,300 aggravated assaults with a firearm. But no one is tracking whether someone pulled the trigger and a bullet hit a body. What can a bullet do? Mm. A bullet in a body can break the flesh, cut the muscle, blast the bone, and create all kinds of pain, trauma, and suffering. But it's the radiating force that goes beyond that, which is the true force of the bullet, because it has the capacity not just to impact the person whose body is pierced, but to impact their community, their home, and the little world that's around them, or the very big world that's around them. So it's kind of endless. I, I often say that the day that Martin Luther King was shot, the entire world had bullet-related injury. And you notice I'm saying bullet-related injury. Bullet-related injury is my definition of what bullets can do, which is the constellation of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual injury that results from a bullet, but not related only to the person whose body is pierced, but again, everyone around them. 
Let me make sure I understand what the implication of what you just said is. Uh-huh. If someone goes to the emergency department and they say they remove the, the bullet, stitch up the arm, uh-huh. send the person home. Which actually neither one of those things happen in the emergency room. <laughs> Many people think that's what happens, but that's actually not at all what happens. But if they were physically cared for right. and then discharged to home, but no attention to the trauma, no attention to the psychological impact of that piece of metal that tore through their body, right. no sense of how their family is affected by that, uh, no sense of how their neighborhood is going to react to it, no sense of people won't come visit their house anymore because they're afraid to go someplace where someone gets shot. There is a lot packed into that notion of bullet-related injury. Right, right. right. It's typically called gun violence, which for me um, is a misnomer and a highly stigmatizing phrase. Why? Well, first of all, it refers to the path that a bullet takes to get into a body, but it doesn't actually, it's not very scientific. Because for instance, as a surgeon, I've never seen the gun that shot any of my patients, but I've seen more bullets than I care to think about. So it's focusing on a mechanism and not an end result and not an actual vector. The other thing is it's, it's, tagging value onto the incident by calling it violent because not all bullets get into bodies in violent circumstances. So it is to me the same thing as the language we used to use for HIV. We used to call AIDS gay-related immune deficiency Mm -hmm. or the four H's related to things like hemophilia and Haiti. Like we had these, we were obsessed with this incredibly superficial and stigmatizing description of what was happening, putting the entire burden on the disease process, on the identity of the human, and not the virus that was causing the disease state. And then finally we named the virus and we named the syndrome and we could get much more scientific, much more compassionate, and much more proactive about our approach. Bullets are like HIV in 1979 right now. We see it, we're wringing our hands about it. We, we know it is killing people left and right. It's the number one cause of death of children. And yet we continue to use this inaccurate stigmatizing language to describe it, which bakes it so that we do not understand it. We do not define it. We do not study it. We do not treat it as it actually is, because we're so satisfied with this highly unnuanced, inaccurate language. Now, why? That's a whole nother conversation. Right. It, I'll say as a, as, a, as a white guy, my sense is that a lot, of, a lot of people think this is a problem that exists for other people. This isn't a problem that exists for me. This doesn't happen in the suburbs. You know, it only happens in the city, which, of course, is not true. But it, it becomes a social disease rather than 
something that could be a community could rally around and actually try to fix. Right. So two big things for me and my history and how I got interested in bullet-related injury. First, I, too, as a young surgeon, had a perception that gun violence was an urban problem, code black, right there, and that it had it, its root was limited to a very specific group of people for whom I had a great deal of compassion, but still judgment. And then I was in my training as a trauma surgeon um, when I came across a gentleman who tried to end his own life due to unbelievable emotional, physical, spiritual pain, psychological pain, related to his own cancer, the loss of his wife, and a whole lot of other things. And in trying to take his life, um, he, he, he exposed to me the total failure of the healthcare system to care for his bullet-related injury. And I got curious because he was a 75-year-old white man. And so I reviewed all of the bullet deaths at the trauma center where I was training for the prior 10 years. And I found that amongst those deaths, uh, uh, it was actually the case that white men over the age of 50 were the ones most likely to die from a bullet. And that actually is true in this country because dying by a bullet that a person has put in their own body is twice as likely to happen than having a bullet put in your body by someone else and that white men over the age of 50 are at the highest risk. So the truth, it blew me away because wow. I said, why are we talking about it this way? Right. So it turns out the CDC classifies these kinds of injuries and deaths in four very clunky categories that stop the disease process from being identified as the singular disease caused by bullets. So it's homicide, suicide, unintentional, and law enforcement related. Okay, now wrap your mind around that. How does that get a separate category? Right. How does that get a separate category? Another talk. But the bottom line is, by segregating these four causes, again, what? Focusing on the behavior and the identity rather than the vector in the actual outcome. Right. You have fragmented a disease process, which is actually one process. And if you actually studied it as one process, then you might begin to understand its risks, its, its causes, its natural history, its prevention, and its treatment. But because you want to focus on the gun and the why, you don't actually get to the what and the how, which is what medicine should do. Hmm. What is it like for you to, like all the rest of us, witness, <clears throat> witness news coverage of mass shooting events uh, at a distance, so like the one in, say, in Texas. Um, here you are in St. Louis, you hear about it, you see it on television, you read about it in the newspaper. How do you process that? How do you as a human being 
deal with the information that you're getting like the rest of us get it? You know, I, many years ago, when I would get the news of a, of a mass shooting, I would dismiss the event as a totally preventable, completely unnecessary tragedy, which was based on our country's political and historical relationship with guns. And I came also then to the conclusion that the only way to prevent and change those outcomes was to change our relationship with guns. And I stood in this posture of, of, of judgment and, and, and kept it at a distance. And then December 2012 happened. December 2012, I was on a trip with my mother and my six-month-old son. And I got a call from my best friend who told me that, it wasn't a call, it was a text, who, who asked me to pray for her friend because there was an event at the school and her daughter Anna was missing. I was actually asleep when the text came through, taking a nap with my son. I got up and I answered like, okay, I'm praying. And I will never forget Stephanie, who's my partner actually, texting me back saying, she's gone. That was Anna Grace Marquez Green, who died in Sandy Hook Elementary. And I had a lot of friends in Connecticut. I went to school in Connecticut, med school in Connecticut. And uh, so it wasn't surprising to me. I was one degree of separation away from someone who lost a child mm -hmm. in Sandy Hook. Having a child at that point myself, I, I found this sort of dismissive, distant, that's just a preventable problem, that's a political one. And I can just put it to the side like I put to side flooding in California or the stock market falling. And it became real. Fast forward four years, and I'm recruited, recruited to Ferguson, post-Ferguson, mm -hmm. to literally come to ground zero where the discourse on guns, violence, and race is happening in a way that it's not happening anywhere else in this country. Right. And, and, and hadn't ever happened in that way. Right. And I remember Sandy Hook, and I remember... Baltimore, where I learned to take care of that quote-unquote urban gun violence I knew about. And I remember the, the truth that older white men were more likely to die than anyone else. And I remember all of these things. And I, and I heard the cry from the St. Louis community to come outside and do something about it. And in the midst of those years, between 2012 and 2016, the National Stop the Bleed campaign had been launched, ironically, by a trauma surgeon who taught me in medical school, Manworth Jacobs, who's from the University of Connecticut, where I went to med school. And that campaign was asking the question at a public health level, what could be done so less people died in mass shootings, as a harm reduction model, the same way we had faced the question, what could happen so less people died from um, having a heart attack 
or not being able to breathe or choking outside the outside of a medical setting. And that's why we decided to teach everyone the Heimlich maneuver and CPR. So that was the similar approach. And in taking that approach, it began to get a little bit more scientific about the problem of bleeding, which is the primary cause of death from bullets that you can do anything about, right? And it, and in being more scientific, I felt like, okay, I, 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 I'm not going to take a passive political call your congressman posture. The community is crying for presence. Let me bring this campaign. Let me bring my own pain from seeing my friends suffer. And let me listen to what I'm hearing from folks in St. Louis every day who are experiencing this reality, not as a one-off mass shooting, but as a daily threat. Mm-hmm. And bring all those principles right out there, right to them in a way that's accessible, relatable, affordable, and real. And at that move to sort of get off of the sidelines and into the fight has totally changed my life. Yeah. My guest today is Dr. L.J. Punch, a trauma surgeon here in St. Louis and founder of The Brick, the bullet-related injury clinic. Coming up, I'm going to have a conversation with a patient who's been getting treatment here at the clinic, talk about how the clinic's approach is helping him since he was shot back in the winter. Dr. Punch, tell me about this building that we're in. So this is called the T. It's a building that used to be an accountant's office. In 2016, I had the idea to bring Stop the Bleed out to the community. It took me two years. I I remember coming to this crossroads being like, no one's going to give me anything to do this. I just have to do it myself. So I took a portion of my income that I had historically put aside as a charitable offering. And I said, well, I think the universe will understand. I'll put it into this instead. So This becomes my charity. Yes. So I, I took some money. I bought some stuff. And I realized I couldn't buy the stuff that was the official Stop the Bleed branded stuff because it was too expensive. And it was very clunky. Everything was white. Everything was expensive. Everything was military style and totally in, in, inaccessible. And I'm like, I cannot go to folks in St. Louis with a model of a white body, with a vacuum-sealed military pack, and say, this is you. You can do this. We de- deconstructed everything. Mm. We used bright colors. We used modular things like tourniquets individually, gauze individually, so people could touch, feel, see, and understand what it is that we were putting in their hands. And we took it to people in real time and taught them how to stop the bleed. Now, when I say we, I'm talking about me and two people. One, Jane Hayes, who at the time was a first-year medical student, and two, Aaron Andrade, who at the time was a second-year surgery resident. They believed in the vision, and they helped me. I, we decided we needed a space because we were renting space, and we, were, we, didn't, have any, we didn't have a central hub. So um, I knew that Maxine Clark was building the Del Mar Divine, just a few blocks down the street. Mm-hmm. And I had talked to her about the project, and I realized that Del Mar didn't have to be a dividing line. It could be a meeting space. Right. Well, I'm, I'm just going to jump in for people yeah. who are listening outside of the St. Louis area. Yes. Um, 
we are literally on um, a rather large east-west thoroughfare yes. that has traditionally divided the community in half. So much so that the I think the life expectancy of someone who lives north of Del Mar is significantly shorter, seven years, seven years shorter than someone who lives south of, right. of the street that you're on. Right. So this street has become iconic for what's wrong with St. Louis right. in terms of segregation, in terms of inequalities, social resources that are available to communities. And so it's, it's a very meaningful place for anything that aims to heal right. to be located. Because what divides us can also be where we meet. So I literally remember standing outside and we had made a logo, which is T, a T with a slash through it, which is a symbol of a tourniquet, a symbol that time is life, and the symbol of no more trauma. And so the T was how we were identifying our equipment and our identity. And I was like, well, let's just call the building the T. I had, I had had a dream, I think, up front that, you know, you have the Y, like the YMCA, <laughs> or you have the J, the Jewish Community Center. I'm like, let's have a T, <laughs> right? For us. Um, because there needs to be a place where people can step into their own capacity to heal, because that is the only way you can heal from the deep trauma of a bullet. I don't, I don't know what's motivating this question other than saying in the old days, if you had a beef with someone, you might throw a punch at them or you might mm -hmm. take it outside and mm -hmm. you and your boys might mm -hmm. jump all over somebody. Mm -hmm. Now it seems that disputes get escalated to, to gunfire pretty quickly. Yeah. Certainly there was a time when there was what we would call a code of the street where disputes would be carried out in certain ways and that bullets were not endemic. They weren't in every hand, on every corner, in every place, all the time, ready to fly. And certainly there was discernment as to what, who could and who could not be injured. Meaning you don't kill babies and mamas, just real talk, right? Right. So what on earth would create a situation in which that would change so dramatically. So part of it is simply what I just said. Bullets are endemic. And that is a history that Missouri itself owns in a unique way because the United States and Missouri as a state produce an inordinate amount of bullets. There, there are mass graves in Latin America full of bodies, killed, that have bullets made in this state. Along with that, there's the supply of firearms. You know, there's more firearms than cars, right? Like, so you have a saturation of a life-threatening force in our worlds, right? This is how we are an armed society. So I think part of what's going on is that you have vulnerabilities, you have arguments, you have depression, you have poverty, you have structural racism, you have any worlds of human emotion and stress which would move toward an action that could threaten another or self, right? That's supercharged by the presence of unlocked and armed firearms, right? 
Like, this is just how we've decided we want to live. Now, you want to talk about Second Amendment. You want to talk about states' rights. You want to talk about slave patrols. You're going to have to dig deep, but you're going to find at the root of it all, still, I believe, structural racism driving the ubiquitous nature of bullets and firearms in this country. And, and the thing about it is that that same structural racism creates a vulnerability to all, regardless. Yeah. Right? We already discussed yeah. folks most likely to end their life is white men over the age of 50. So, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, it, there's a supply problem and there's a structural problem that I think is driving us so that that rage that you're talking about becomes uniquely vulnerable in the setting of this saturation of life threatening force. There are people though on the street, real talk, who will tell you they're flooding black neighborhoods with guns and drugs. That these, that the, that the, the sort of the, um, the supply and the ecosystem of firearms in communities that are minoritized in this country is unusually supercharged and maybe highly supported by everything from criminal justice system and law enforcement itself. I mean, you hear people Mm. talk that. Mm. You hear people on the block say they're flooding our neighborhoods with these weapons and these drugs because both of them are a mechanism of managing trauma. So, So my answer, my real, my deepest answer to that question of why is it that this choice is being made to act with such force when really maybe a fist fight would be a more effective way to really duke it out. You're talking about a human being in that circumstance who has a sense of worth, feels a threat, and makes a choice to defend themselves with an intact ego. That is not the circumstance you're talking about in a generation of a generation of a generation of a generation of trauma baked in to someone's mind and body and soul so deeply that it's not an if it's a when that they're going to die. That the world is not a place that has anything for them but trauma and pain and that the best thing they can do is wake up and feel good some kind of way, some kind of how, and it doesn't matter. I see bodies, hearts, and minds who have been thoroughly communicated with that they don't matter. And when you tell a body, a heart, and a mind that it does not matter, repeatedly, and reinforce it in every single thing that makes up that soul's life, there is no reason or ration or anything you can apply right. to the choices that they might make. They have no reason to choose otherwise. Am I blaming the victim? Absolutely not. I'm naming the decades of intergenerational trauma that have communicated to minoritized people that they don't matter, that have communicated to black people, that have communicated to black men that they don't matter. It's in the body. Yeah. I have deeply learned in my body that the world is not a safe place and that nobody has my back and that the only thing I can do is fight for my survival. My body has learned that. What does it mean? That means my sympathetic nervous system is turned on high 
every single day. That means my prefrontal cortex doesn't even get the chance to develop as an adolescent and get to the point where I can even think those thoughts. So you're being triggered all the time, you think? Perpetually. My cortisol levels are high. I do not sleep. My brain literally develops in a different pathway such that you have generation after generation of traumatized people. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like a communicable, inheritable disease. But because we do not have systems of care that will take the time to recognize trauma in that way, we just think it's this emotional or maybe mental thing and not recognizing the way it's in the body and actually baked and changes our physiology, we're not ready to treat it in that way. So much of what we talk about here in bullet-related injury is the embodiment of trauma and really grappling with what it does to a human being and all the ways it changes them and all the opportunities they have to heal. This is, I'm, I am arguing that the medicine that we're practicing in bullet-related injury is simply a model for any healer who wants to get at the deep issue of trauma because trauma is a whole person, whole being, deeply, deeply injuring, intergenerational, communicable, inheritable condition, which deserves far more resources and treatment than our systems of care are bothering to give it. Now, why? Why would we have this process in human bodies creating violence, creating chronic disease, creating all worlds of suffering, destabilizing communities, threatening schools and churches. Why why would we let that happen? It's because it is an extremely effective way of assuring that the economic realities of slavery and structural violence continue. Because when you have a group of folks who do not feel that they are safe, who cannot actualize their best selves and get out of this fight-or-flight response, they can undo themselves without you even having to lift a finger. Mm. And so much of what we do here in this clinic at the brick, which is at the T, is to say, this thing happened to you, but it is not your fault. And it does not have to define the rest of your life. We want to literally break the pain, stop it, stop the bleed, become aware of the trauma, and help people come into their full conscious selves as emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual beings. And in doing that, actually have a moment which could, which could have meant their death, become a moment that defines the power they have for the rest of their life. Sort of be transformational. That's right. Um, We're speaking in the evening. Clinic is closed. So, um, and we were delayed starting because um, you, you saw a patient Mm -hmm. who came to have a, um, you came to see you, but then you decided that they needed to have a bullet removed from their arm. Right. That's obviously part of what goes on here, but it's yeah. not everything that goes on here. Right. Tell me, tell me about that encounter with that right. gentleman. So the bullet-related injury clinic was structured around the phenomenon that 50% of bullet injuries are managed in the ambulatory setting. I mean, half of all people who are shot who go to a trauma center are sent home without being admitted to the hospital, immediately in charge of their own care because... Their bullet injury didn't require surgery. 
or close medical surveillance. And because the only injury, right, is the physical one that we're identifying, everything else they can just deal with on their own because it's not real. It's gun violence, right? Gun violence didn't cause them to need an operation, so good luck with that. So people are discharged home with an injury that has only been identified in its most superficial dimension. Now, on top of that, the fact that 50% of people are sent home, bullet injuries get worse in the days after someone has been shot, even physically, because the bullet has a pathway which is associated with a blast effect. There is a cavity around the bullet that gets exposed to tremendous energy transfer. That energy transfer literally shakes up the fat and the muscle and the blood vessels and the nerves and causes the body to respond. That response is inflammation. Inflammation takes a little while to get going. So patient after patient after patient we hear will be in the emergency room and be fine. And then three days later, they're like, it's killing them. It hurts so bad. Why? Because the secondary inflammation is kicking in. In other words, there are probably a lot of people who would need inpatient care, but their bullet injury isn't even that bad while they're sitting in the ER, so it's easy to send them home. They're almost numb, completely intoxicated by the trauma and the meds they've gotten, and they're sent home to deal with all of this that's only going to get worse physically by themselves. As a trauma surgeon, I saw that happening from a distance, though, because, again, I was in the hospital. I wasn't outside. But I knew that people were going through our care and not having what they needed to care for themselves. Even when they did get admitted to the hospital, I would see them and follow up at the our outpatient clinic. And the questions they would have would be oddly similar. Like what? Very simple. I don't know how to eat. I don't know how to manage my pain. I don't know what to do with my wound. I don't know how to clean and care for my body. And I can't go to work, I can't deal with my family, and I can't deal with my home because I am stressed out. Same thing over and over and over again. Those elements became the foundation for the medicine we practice at The Brick because they are basically the human telling you, my body has trauma. If you come to me and your nose is running and your throat is sore and you have a headache and you're coughing, you have a cold. You know that. You know what it is. And we work with you to treat it. If you come to me and your blood sugar is high and you're gaining weight and every time you eat something sweet, you get a headache and you pee a lot, well, then you have diabetes. You have diabetes. We understand those things. When someone is shot, they have trauma, which means an array of physiologic responses happens in their body, which is pretty predictable. Their sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system, which is the autonomic nervous system, which is in charge of regulating you, is completely fried. So your GI tract is not regulated. And you're in a state of arousal, so you can't sleep. And your perception of pain is completely heightened. And any movement or sense of threat or anything around you, you can feel as if it's another moment when your life could end. Right. You lack trust of what of your environment. You do not trust your environment, and you do not even trust your own body being a safe place for you to be. 
is an incredibly difficult condition to be in. And so that trauma is in 50% of people who are shot, sent back to homes, communities, without any plan for care. Yeah, that's insane. And, it's insane when you look at it from and that in, perspective. It's, it, and in a place like Missouri, a place like St. Louis, we know that the overwhelming majority of that group is young black men who don't have insurance. Now you have a group of people in whom you have successfully communicated what? That you don't matter. Now, what if you just keep doing that year after year? Our, our largest trauma center in St. Louis sees around 1,000 people every year who are shot. So that means about 500 are getting sent home. Do that for a decade. Yeah. That's 5,000 people in this city in the last decade who are walking around with the very clear and real communication that they do not matter, who have a quote-unquote disease that they do not even know exists, who are suffering from an inability to trust themselves and the world around them, and maybe even carrying around inside their body a piece of metal that was intended for their death. How? How on earth is there any hope of preventing that disease from recurring, reverberating, and radiating, metastasizing, mm -hmm. if we do not treat it in the 50% of patients? Imagine if I was talking about something like tuberculosis, and we said, Half of the people with TB will go home from the ER. We might give them some medicine and we'll see if they take it. When you do that, when you incompletely treat something that has the capacity to spread, you make it stronger. Is there any mystery that bullets in their endemic form are becoming more and more virulent? Mm -hmm. It is the same process. Mm -hmm. We just aren't being scientific and calling it by its name. And we're not being compassionate and equitable in seeing it for what it actually is. So all of that is to say, me observing that process, me knowing, and we did research on this, Aaron studied this, to understand what was happening I realized that if I wanted to be part of helping this disease and helping this violence and helping this injury occur less, that I would do best by pouring my en energy into making sure it gets treated up front. See, this is the thing. I myself had been kept in the argument that prevention was the only plan. What does that sound like? It sounds like abstinence. That argument doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work for anything. And instead, I said, if I can reduce the harm of bullets and help one person at a time become aware that they have trauma, that it doesn't have to be that way, and that there is a way forward in healing, then maybe one person at a time, day after day after day, I can help turn the tide in the devastation that bullets are currently causing in this city, in this country, and even in this world. Is it a multidisciplinary team that works here with you? So the bullet-related injury clinic, again, was started focusing on the outpatient management of people who had been shot, recognizing that 50% of people are discharged from the emergency room. 
It begins by an introduction inside the emergency room to the clinic through the provision of something we call a brick box. This is the practice of radical generosity, which I believe is the first step in healing that broken trust. So the box has what you need for wound care, pain management, and some self-care in the first few days. Then people are asked if they will share their phone number or their information with us, and then I or my assistant reach out in the first two to three days after the referral has come in to say, hey, are you okay? Do you have what you need? Would you like some wound care supplies? Would you like help with your pain? And people then can come to the clinic. So the first, the most outward facing thing that we provide in the clinic is wound care, pain management, and what we call trauma recovery. And that's provided by a fairly clinical group with a lot of assistance. Um, But that's the foundation, the bottom 5 to 10% of what we provide. And it's something people can understand and what gets them in the door. But once they're in the door, they're greeted by a number of other services. I would say the next most important one is our physical function services because we have an occupational therapist and a set of chiropractors from Logan University who provide that kind of functional care. Because as soon as we get the pain control and the wound healing, we need the body moving again, right? Then we um, have a a group of chaplains that... um, one in particular from Eden Seminary, um, and then more community chaplains coming in to provide spiritual care. Because that broken trust is in and of itself often a spiritual injury, and one that can also be deeply moved by a connection to the divine within and without. So that care has blown all of us away, because it's not about religion. It's about recognizing people as spiritual beings and recognizing the way bullets impact that. When you are standing a distance from someone and a missile moves through space and penetrates your body with the intention for death, I'm sorry, I don't care who you are, you have a spiritual injury. Because your being, your existence, your space is threatened. And it's not threatened by a human that you can see, know, and touch and fight like you were talking about, man to man or fist to fist, right? Right. It's this force Move, that moves through the air. I actually think it's the distance that can occur between whoever is shooting somebody and the person who gets shot that creates a more virulent injury on the other way, on the other side. Because if it was just me punching you and you knew who punched you and you could make sense of it, then you would not be so confused, so disoriented, so dysregulated. But when you're driving home from work and pff, you hear something and next thing you know your foot's bleeding and you have a bullet, and you don't even know where it came from. How do you make anything right. in your world make sense at that right. point? And that's what we see people going through. And even, even if the shooter is known, seen, witnessed to you, it's as if it's, it, it's always struck me as being sort of a coward's tool, mm. a gun, because I don't actually have to be up against right. you, I can strength against here. strength. I can stand 30 feet away from just you psh- and pull a trigger right. and kill you. Right. And it's... It's a coward's game. It's also, it's loud. It's sudden. So even people who shoot themselves because they were reaching for a gun because they felt threatened by something they saw in the corner of their eye and they didn't take in the proper provision to handle their firearm safely, they, they also have this deep sort of, oh, I'm not okay. I can't trust myself. I just mm. shot myself. 
So, so we also have a number of people in the clinic who have uh, survived bullet injury or deep trauma of some kind. And we have um, the space itself feels more like a living room. Yeah. And there's things to play with. People can bring their kids, their loved ones. And we have a lot of um, items for self-care that go beyond the wound care and the pain management like fidget toys and new pillowcases and aromatherapy beads and all these little things that say, you do have power. This reminds me of palliative care in a lot of ways, mm. the sort of multidisciplinary approach to taking care of somebody during a period of transition and transformation. Mm. You know, it's interesting because obviously that word has a connotation that it's about the end of life, but it's really about reducing suffering. It and is. that's 1,000% I mean, what The pall of palliative care is a cloak that's meant to comfort someone, mm. not to not to bury them. It's there to comfort someone. We very much do not want to practice a prescriptive kind of care, which is not unlike the trajectory of a bullet. I'm sitting here, I throw this prescription at you and you have to deal with it. No, it's I'm here, I see you, you matter. Yeah, there's going to be some technical things you need to do that we can help you do. But so much of this is communicating to your body, mind, and soul that you're safe now. Yeah. Because when you communicate that to your body, mind, and soul that you're safe now, you don't have trauma the same way. You start to regulate your autonomic nervous system. You start to eat. You start to sleep. You start to think. You start to feel. And you start to being able to move through the world again, able to trust other people and able to live inside your body trusting yourself. Yeah. I'm so glad to have had this chance to, yeah. to chat with you. Absolutely. LJ Punch is the founder and medical director of The Brick, the bullet-related injury clinic in St. Louis. You'll find a link to the clinic's website on our own, hearmenowpodcast.org. I sat down with Pierre Underwood a few days after I spoke with Dr. Punch, and we talked about Mr. Underwood's bullet injury and what it's like to receive care at the brick. It was February 7th, three or four o'clock in the morning. And I, I was at my girlfriend's house sleep in the bed. And uh, I heard a single gunshot. It kind of waking me up a little, but you know, we're in the middle of North St. Louis city. So, you know, it's a lot of gunshots on the regular, but it's kind of close. So I heard again. So I tapped my girl and I asked her, hey, did you hear that? She said, no, I ain't heard nothing. She laid back down. Before she closed her eyes again, we heard it again. So I get up and go to look through the window and somebody's breaking in all cars. It's so cold because of the tinted, because of the tinted windows that they had to shoot them instead of just punching them. When I do that, I run to the window. I yell, hey, stop, get away from my car, get away from my car, you know, get on. Instead of running away, you know, being scared, he turned around and pointed his gun and started shooting towards the window. I'm on the second floor. It's like, it's like I don't know if he got lucky or if I just was unlucky or what. So when he started shooting, he hit me in the chest. Uh, I didn't know at the time I was shot. So I got knocked from the window to about halfway across the living room. I'm telling my girl, you know, call the cops, call the cops. At this point, I don't know I'm shot. My adrenaline's still pumping, so I just, uh, I'm just thinking my arm hurting. So she walk in the room and she get to screaming. And when she starts screaming, I'm like, man, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she's like, look, look, look. At that point, I'm like, man, I gotta get to now. I see that I'm shot. Now I feel it. Now my adrenaline going. I can feel the shot. We think about waiting on the ambulance, but I'm bleeding profusely. Like I'm, I'm bleeding heavy. So we drive around to Barnes. The bullet went through and through, but it, it, it damaged my nerves in my chest. Let's say where the bullet went in at is like a half a centimeter above my heart and like three centimeters under the main artery. So yeah, it's like, yeah, I got shot, but I'm blessed. 
So uh, I go, they give me some uh, some Oxycontin fives and Tylenol it's, and gavel pen. It's not doing anything for my pain. Like I'm in the hospital hurting bad. So after three days, four days, uh, I didn't have insurance anymore. So when I didn't have insurance, they put me, they told me, you know, they discharged me. The counselor came in and she told me about this place. She recommended it. So, uh, so I came here for the first time on a Saturday morning. Man, probably the best Saturday I had in I don't know how long. When I walked in, the atmosphere was just love. Like, they really cared for me. They really was there. They showed me, I mean, not even the medicine side of it, just the, in this city, just the giving the damn was so, so mentally helpful for me, especially at that time in my life. You gotta think about it, I just got shot. My mom just died four months before this. You know, I'm going through money troubles. Uh, me and my girl having problems because we trying to figure out who was messing with the cars. Uh, and then, of course, I can't help, and then I'm mad and hurting, so I got a bad attitude at the time. You know, it's just a bunch of shit she didn't deserve, but it was the pain. But this place, man, just the hugs I got when I walked in. Like, it just, it, it just, it, took, it lifted my spirit so much. I mean, like, from everything, from the water they offered you, from the mask they gave you, from the Tylenol at the desk, and just the way they spoke to me, like, not even so much as the medicine, just the atmosphere and the aura of every every person that worked here, the whole team, from Dr. Punch on down. Like, it was just amazing. Like, it just gave you a place to feel wanted. Do you remember any example of that? Like, the what was it about the what they said to you or how they said it? It's more so of, hey, honey, or more so of, uh, of it was beaten into me of, of how what, what type of pain are you and how can we help you? What can we do? Where can we, how can we assist you? No, don't do that, let us help you. It was just a major sigh of relief, man, just to feel like you had somebody around that cured. Like, and, and of course my girl cured and my family cured, but you know, we, we was going through it and I'm so uptight and so hurt and stressed out myself and everybody's still on edge because of course I just almost lost my life. But the aura, I'ma say that, the atmosphere of this place is just, is love. Like when you walk in, you can just feel it. Like every time I come here, everybody's smiling, they saying hi. They don't say, hey, how you doing, sir? They said hi, Pierre, every time. I mean, like, I only seen, I, I might have seen a guy one time, three or four weeks ago when I came. And when I come back, hey, hi, Pierre, how you doing? How you doing today? How you feeling? You feeling okay? You feeling any better? What can I do for you? Like, I mean, and it's, I'm saying from the top to the bottom of the staff, this place, like, has dramatically helped change my life, man. Like, it, it helped bring me, at a time where I thought my arm would never work again, it has brought me back to where I can really use my hand. I'm, I'm beginning to work out again. Like, yeah, my arm's still pretty weak, but you, as you can see, I can raise it up and everything. I can touch. I can, I can fold it backwards. That's all because of this play. I got feeling again. It's coming back because the the medicine they helped me with, uh, the tools they helped me acquire, the talking to them. Uh, they got spiritual counselor. The talking to them. The physical therapist is great. Uh, the chiropractor helped me. I get Thai massages here. I bring my relatives in my town to to come meet these people. Man. Just because I know the, I know the feeling they're gonna get her. I've had this feeling over and over again. I've caught this vibe several times in my life, like only from her. Like I've never, especially going to a medical field. So like I've never had the top-notch insurance or the best grade of occur uh, in the world. But coming here, like it's more like a mom and pop store. Remember how the mom and pop stores that you go in, they call you by your name and yeah. they treat you good, might give you a discount or something, might tell you go and take it. Like that's what this place is to me, man. Cause like they showed me different. Like they gave me a renewed sense of life. I mean, there's so much more. Yes, the bullet-related injury clinic, but this could be the life-related related clinic because yeah. that's what it helps. That's what it gives you. It gives you, give you life goals and life morals. It helps set you up to believe again, like to really believe again. Uh -huh.
Pierre Underwood is recovering from a bullet injury in St. Louis. Open your eyes. Take a deep breath. Your surgery is over now. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up and see the truth of what bullets do. It's time to wake up and hear the voices of our dead children. It's time to wake up and protect our people from the poison of apathy and the apathy that assures that bullets will continue to go deep over and over and over again. It's time to wake up. 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 The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web at hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. We have research help from medical librarians Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Amanda Schwartz, and Heather Martin. Special thanks to Drs. Jeffrey Butts, Richard Rosenfeld, and Victor St. John and to the Brick staff. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Join us in two weeks when we do a deep dive and try to answer some questions about long COVID. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.